and then the, the internship uh, meetings came across a prayer by George Whitfield that has resonated with me, and I thought it would be appropriate this morning for me to modify it and pray it before we jump into the word together. So if you'll join with me in prayer. Our holy God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray that as we look into your word, you would help us behold Christ. God, we ask that you would meet with us. Trust that your word is truth. And as such, may we submit our lives to it. And as we put ourselves under your word on a regular, consistent basis, God, I pray that you would help us be a church that are mighty in the scriptures, that our lives are dominated by a sense of the greatness and the majesty and the holiness that you exhibit, and that our minds and hearts would be aglow with the great truths of the doctrines of grace. God, help us learn what it is to die to self, to human aims, and to personal ambitions. May we be a church that's willing to be fools for the sake, sake of Christ, who will bear reproach and falsehood, who will labor and suffer, and whose supreme desire will be not to gain earth's accolades, but to win the master's approval when we appear before your judgment seat. May we share truth in the gospel with broken hearts and tear-filled eyes. Pray that you would use our lives to bring about transformation in multitudes of others. And that is not something that we can manufacture. It's not something that this, that this sermon can manufacture. And so we ask that the sermon that is heard would be much more effective than the one that is preached. And we pray this because you're worthy. We pray this for your glory and in the name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. So the poem goes, if I can pull the poem up, when things go wrong as they sometimes will, and the road you're trudging seems all uphill, when the funds are low and the debts are high, and you want to smile but you have to sigh, when care is pressing you down a bit, rest if you must, but don't quit. Life is odd with its twists and turns, as every one of us sometimes learns, and many a failure turns about when he might have won had he stuck it out. Don't give up, though. The peace seems slow. The pace seems slow. You may succeed with another blow. Often the goal is nearer than it seems to a faint and faltering man. Often the struggler has given up what he might have captured in the victor's cup, and he learned too late when the night slipped down, how close he was to the golden crown. Success is failure turned inside out, the silver tint of the clouds of doubt, 
and you never can tell, tell, well, you never can tell how close you are. It may be near when it seems afar. So stick to the fight when you're hardest hit. And when things seem worst, remember, you mustn't quit. I wonder this morning what areas of life you are fighting the urge to quit. I wonder what it is that's pressing up against you that it seems that it would just be easier to run and quit. When things get hard, when opposition abounds, when discouragement sets in, when the road that you walk seems empty and you feel alone, when it seems that the plan simply isn't working, it would be much easier perhaps to quit. It would be much easier to sort of settle. It would be easier to drift, to look for a shortcut. And yet, as we've learned over the last few weeks in our time in First Timothy, Timothy had many reasons to quit. Things were not well at the church in Ephesus. And Paul writes with these challenges in mind to this young and timid pastor. And he gives him strikingly simplistic encouragement. Timothy, persevere. Don't quit. Even though false teaching of legalism has come in, leaders in the church have shipwrecked their faith. They've led other folks to fall away from the faith. Confusion is reigning over the roles of men and women, uh, that, that the roles men and women are to play when they're gathered. And yet all the while, t- Paul writes to Timothy and says, it's worth it. Don't quit. Persevere. Why? Why is it worth it? The whole letter hinges on what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. The reason that it's worth it is because these saints are the church of the living God. They are to be the support and the pillar of the truth. Much, much more is at stake than temporary harmony. Much more is at stake than peaceable days. No, the truth is being supported by the lives and the witness of the saints. It's not merely the name of this church that's at stake. It's not the reputation in the name of the pastor that's at stake. It's God's reputation and it's God's name that are on the line. And so the encouragement that Paul gives to young Timothy is to persevere. Don't quit. And if I could, by extension, on that authority, look at you, fellow Christian, and remind you that whatever post that you're in, whatever season seems to be dragging on, whatever hardship seems to be nagging and following you at every turn, there's much more at stake don't quit. Persevere. You see, Paul has written in this, what Paul has written in this letter, it's specifically applicable to Timothy. It's who the letter is addressed to. But it's also to be read in front of the church. And so not only is there application for Timothy, there's also application for those who would 
serve alongside with Timothy, as well as those who would serve as pastors after Timothy. There's clear application to to Timothy and to all pastors since Timothy. But this is being read with the church in mind. It's being read before the church. It's being read to the church. And so there's general application for all Christians. And so when it comes to the Christian life generally or church life specifically, brothers and sisters of the faith, I want to call you to persevere. Don't quit. In fact, your perseverance is the evidence that you do indeed belong to him. Your perseverance is the evidence that you belong to him. Saving faith is enduring faith. Saving faith is persevering faith. And you say, well, wait a minute. This is starting to sound a little bit like salvation by works. That somehow I have to, I have to uh, endure in order to be saved. No, 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 no. Our perseverance isn't the cause of our salvation. It's the evidence of it. We participate with God in working out the evidence of our salvation. God is the ultimate cause, and yet we work it out as evidence of it. Persevering faith is the primary mark of genuine conversion, genuine salvation. You could look at Matthew chapter 10, verse 22. You could look at Colossians 1. You could look at Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14. And genuine salvation is accomplished by the grace of God. And yet every Christian is invited, is commanded to persevere. To roll up our sleeves. And by the ordinary means of grace to persevere in the faith. And so if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to open them to 1 Timothy chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, it would be our joy to give you one at the information table on your way out today. We would love for you to have a copy of God's Word and just to read it. If you want to use one that's in front of you, if you use the New American Standard translation, you can find it on the New Testament, page 164. That will be the second page 164 in that Bible. Old Testament, New Testament, go to the New Testament, page 164. Chapter 4, the large number, the smaller numbers of the verses will be in verses 11 through 16. And so as we conclude chapter 4 this morning, it would serve us to just remember the flow of what's happened in this chapter. Paul has warned Timothy of the deadly danger of false teaching. And this false teaching specifically was seeking to forbid what God had allowed, what God said was good. And we said this is dangerous because if we are in the business of, for, of forbidding what God has allowed, it will not be soon later that we will begin to allow what God has forbid. Last week we saw in the first half of uh, this larger section, verses 6 through 16, we saw that Paul charged Timothy to be a good servant of Christ Jesus. And so he gives them sort of the warning, false teaching is dangerous. And the way we combat false teaching is by insisting on what God's word says. And then he says, Timothy, this is what marks a good servant of Christ Jesus. One who distinguishes truth from error. One whose own soul is constantly nourished 
on the word and the truth. One who disciplines himself for godliness and one who fixes his hope on the living God. And so Paul continues with those kind of four distinguishing marks of a good servant of Christ Jesus. Paul continues in our passage today, verses 11 through 16. If 6 through 10 sort of gave us the profile of a good servant of Christ Jesus, verses 11 through 16 will give us a description of the ministry of a good servant of Christ Jesus. And so we want to be a people. Another way of thinking about it is our private lives, 10 through 16, gives way and fuels our public ministry, 11 through 16, uh, 6 through 10 and 11 through 16. And so he highlights six features of the ministry of a good servant that every one of us ought to look for in a few ways. We should look for this in terms of our elders. You as a member of the church, you should be looking that your elders are modeling this type of life and this type of ministry. This is your responsibility. You should also be looking for others in the church who are modeling this type of life and this type of ministry. Those would be men that we would want to put before our church as elders and pastors. But also, you should be thinking about these things in terms of your own life, how you ought to be working towards this. And so we said last week that something changes in the tone of this letter in 1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 6. Up until then, there's really very few, only three times, Paul commands Timothy to do something. And then once you hit chapter 4, verse 6, there are a litany of commands. The finger sort of begins to come out. He begins to sort of say, Timothy, now this is on you. And so uh, it would be helpful for us to remember that the six features that we're going to talk about today, they aren't suggestions, they aren't fun facts, they aren't nuggets for Bible trivia. No, these are commands that have no other option but obedience. And so, let's look at these six features of the good servant's ministry. A good servant's ministry is marked by, number one, commanding and teaching truth. Commanding and teaching truth. Look again at verse 11. Prescribe and teach these things. Your translation may say, command and teach these things. These things refers specifically to what he's just addressed. The fact that uh, false teaching is deadly and dangerous and that the way one begins to fight false teaching is to discipline themselves for the purpose of godliness. And so when he says these things, these are the things that we are to command and to teach. We can also make a case that when he says these things, he's referring to really the whole scope of everything that he has written the scope of the whole counsel of God. Paul commands Timothy to prescribe, to command, and to teach what God has said. And again, you may be thinking, yes, this is for you, pastor. No, no, no. The Great Commission, Matthew 28, reminds us that this is for you, Christian. We are all to be teaching others to obey and to observe all that Christ has commanded. And there's really something about that word command. We bristle at the thought of someone being able to just command us to do something, to tell us to do something. 
And the word, the word carries a heavy meaning. It means to order, to insist upon doing something. And so even just the word there that Paul uses to encourage Timothy, it, it reminds us that Timothy is called to exercise this ministry with authority. He's to stand and to say, this is what you must do as a professing follower of Jesus. In fact, it's that authority, if you remember, it's why the crowds would marvel at the teachings of Jesus. They had never encountered someone who spoke with so much authority. Which would serve us well then to remember that Timothy's authority, the, the, the authority from which Timothy was to speak, was not something that he would uh, be able to sort of come up on as he got older. It not, it's not an authority that would be kind of passed down in a certain way. No, it's an authority that exists in the scriptures, in the words of Christ, in the word of God. Which is just a good reminder for us then that any pastor with a closed Bible is a pastor with no authority. Any Christian with a closed Bible is a Christian with no authority. Timothy is to insist upon God's people to conform their lives to the standard of the word of God. He commands these things, but he doesn't just command. He doesn't just wield authority. He's not always coming around insisting on what to do. He commands and he teaches. Prescribe and teach these things. Commanding isn't the only tool in his belt. He's not a violent man. He's not a quarrelsome man. He's not a dictator who's lording over the people of God. He opens the word in such a way that the people of God know what it means. He explains the word. He applies the word. He teaches the word. And so it's this loving exercise of authority and gentle love and care. In the Greek, the word, the sentence even is written so that that first word, command, insisting, would carry a lot of the weight. It's emphatic. Why? Because you remember the context. Remember what's at stake. Just look back at the beginning of chapter 4. People are falling away from the faith. False teaching is beginning to creep in. And it's as if Paul, sort of in both the loving mentor but also uh, kind of calling him up, grabbing him by the collar and saying, Timothy, don't flinch in the face of this. Stand up and teach and command these things. Let people hear from God through his word. Timothy, this isn't your thoughts. You carry authority because you speak God's word, which is the authority. Paul is putting steel in Timothy's back. The time to call people back to the word of God requires courage and faith. Church, when your pastors are in a situation where they must insist and teach others to do what the word of God commands, particularly 
in the face of a cultural current that's flowing the other way, I just want to remind you that that is an act of loving authority. Or said another way, it's an act of authoritative love. God intends for love and authority to live together. The exercise of godly authority and godly teaching is an exercise of love whereby the people of God are shepherded by the truth of God. I realize in talking about this and just even in my preparation this week, thinking about for our non-Christian friends who will be here this morning, number one, I'm grateful that you're here. Just even thinking about, okay, yeah, there's such this stigma and stereotype of the church insisting on a bunch of things. I hope that this sermon serves you to help see the act of commanding and the act of teaching as really an expression of love, an expression of care. I well remember what it was like hearing about how I didn't measure up to God's standard because of my sin. I well remember being in high school and sitting in church services and just uh, being told over and over how I would be separated from God because God was holy and I was sinful. And I remember being told, commanded in a way, that Justin, you can do nothing about your sinfulness. You can't close the gap. You can't work your way back to him. And so what did I do? I began to create a God in my own liking. I began to say, no, don't command and don't insist on those things. There are a few things that uh, was being preached and taught that I thought, yeah, that's helpful. So I'll take a little bit of this and a little bit of that. I think David Wells captures this sentiment well. He says, we've turned to a God we can use rather than to a God we must obey. We have turned to a God who will fulfill all of our needs rather than to a God before whom we must surrender the rights to ourselves. We think he is a God for us, for our satisfaction. And we've not learned to think of him this way through Christ. We've learned to think of him this way through the marketplace. Because in the marketplace, everything is for us. It's for our comfort, it's for our pleasure, it's for our satisfaction. And so we have come to assume that it must be so in the church as well. And I love how Wells ends this. He says, so we transform the God of mercy to the God who is at our mercy. I wonder this morning, if you're not a believer, I wonder if that resonates with you. That you find yourself at every turn going, I don't know if I agree with that. And so I'll look somewhere else. And I don't know if I agree with that. And I'll look somewhere else. And I don't know if I'll agree with that. And the marketplace won't insist on much other than that you're right. But to be among a people and in a place who have historical, credible evidence that this is indeed the word that has been breathed out by God. And this word to tells you truths about ourselves that we don't like. I wonder this morning if you would say, yes, I do believe in a God who really worships me, who who bows down to me. I don't think I can believe in a God whom I am called to worship and I am to bow down to and I am to fashion my life around.
And perhaps you even think that God's word is merely his suggestion, his counsel, and a litany of other buffet options from which we can choose. I, I, I pray that over the course of the next few minutes that you would just see how the fundamental issue at work is not about a standard, a God. The fundamental issue at work is how you are bent on yourself. Wanting to fashion a God in your own likeness, a God who would agree with you at every turn, a God who wouldn't push back and call you to something that you may not like. And I just want you to know, insisting on that bent will keep us from knowing the God who has authority, who commands, and who loves. And that's, that's the reason that Jesus Christ came. He came to address the inward bent. He came to address through his perfect sinless life in contrast to our self-consumed sinful life. He came to address by living the life that we should have lived. And the penalty for an eternal sin against an eternal God is an eternal punishment. And in great grace and mercy, he died the death that's reserved for the worst of criminals. For all of sinners. And he died that death knowing that all who would turn from their sin and place their faith and their trust in him alone, then that perfect light would be that perfect life would be credited to their account. And that wrath absorbing death would would protect them from enduring that wrath. And on the third day he rose triumphantly from the grave showing that his sacrifice was indeed sufficient and complete. And the good news this morning is though you may have walked in doubting a God who insists and commands anything, I hope you see the invitation, the invitation to trust and to love a God who loves like this. And really the question that should be running through your mind is what kind of God loves like this? And the answer is there is none. There is none. And so if you will turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ is the only way to be restored to the Father, the only way to have your sins forgiven and your credit, uh, your account credited, then you can know the God who loves and exercises authority. It would be the joy of any person to talk to you about that. I pray that you would not leave without doing that this morning. But that leads us to our second mark. Before telling him how to command and teach, he tells Timothy to exemplify his teaching. And so a good servant's ministry is marked by, number two, setting an example. Setting an example. So it's not just getting right teaching, it's also ensuring right living. Pastors who stand on God's word and call people to obey it will face opposition. 
It's the same for Christians. Christians who stand on God's word and call people to obey it will face opposition. Look at what he says in verse 12. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example to those who believe. So Paul says, don't let anyone despise you because you're young. As you command and teach things, perhaps there's going to be the temptation of some to say, who are you to tell me what to do, young buck? They may not say young buck. (laughs) And Paul says, don't let anyone despise you because of your youth. Older members saying that he's too young to speak to me. And, And verse 12 really is evidence that the title in the office of elder isn't about age. It's about about spiritual maturity. It's hard to lead a church when you're young. And Timothy was walking through this. It's hard to guide a flock when the older sheep keep pulling rank with the age card. I taught your parents in Sunday school. I'm old enough to be your mother. Just wait until you're my age. Or, I was here long, long before you. How would you handle this if you were a young pastor? Most scholars tell us that Timothy was probably in his early to to mid-30s. And I think it's safe to say that he was called to a position beyond his years. Just think about the examples in church history. Spurgeon. Uh, preached his uh, first sermon as a teenager. Calvin, most of the Puritans, uh, current H.B. Charles, uh, pastoring at the age of 18. These examples and the admonition from the Word of God remind us that the way to stop people from looking down on you is to make sure they look up to you by your example. People will be less likely to despise your youth if they admire your example. And rest assured, some people will still despise your youth, but they will be less likely to do so. He's not told to fight those who despise his youth. He's not told to argue and to quarrel against those who despise his youth. He says, be an example. You look at 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, he talks about how to even engage with older saints. When people oppose Timothy because of his youth, he is called to set an example in all of life. An example in in speech, an example in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. He's, He's to avoid falsehood. He's to avoid anger. He's to avoid bitterness and abusive speech. He's to avoid filthy talk. Rather, his speech is to be filled with encouragement and grace, and thanksgiving. I mean, how do you respond when you're criticized and attacked? When you're gossiped about? When you're slandered? This isn't saying, Timothy, make sure when you're in the pulpit you're saying all the right things. No, this is saying, Timothy, make sure that your heart is in the right place for when you're out of it, so flows the wellspring of your heart. In conduct, he's to put off the old and to put on the new. What would people learn if they lived with you? You were to be an example in your conduct. 
You're to be an example in how you love. Colossians 3, above all, put on love. 1 Corinthians 16, let all you do be done in love. Love for neighbor, love for church, love for the lost. Like, are you love? Are you known for your love? Do people think of you and think they love? Spurgeon says, when a man has a large loving heart, men go to him as a ship to a haven. Yeah, just let it be known that it is possible to be a faithful expositor, to be growing in doctrine, and to not be an angry pit bull. It, it's possible. And one of the sharpest motivations that will help us get there to be people who rightly handle the word and who are growing in theology and yet who aren't divisive is, is the call to love. And to be an example in faith. Do people grow in their trust in God by watching you trust in your God? To be an example in purity. Young pastor, are you honest? Are you not hiding anything? Are you above reproach in your relationships? In all of life, these word and deed virtues that he mentions, it's not exhaustive, but it is encompassing. Timothy is to be an example to all who believe. And again, this works for pastors. Pastors are to be an example for the flock, but the church is also to be an example for the world. Peter talks about this in 1 Peter 2.12. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. Strong examples oftentimes silence the critics. Are you at a place where you are comfortable saying what, with what with Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, as I am imitating Christ, so you imitate me. If we were to follow, if we were to pattern, if others were to pattern their lives after you, would it be clear that we are pattern, pattern, patterning? Would it be clear, I don't know how to pronounce it, would it be clear that we are, that our lives look like Christ? <laughs> I can remember as a kid, and I love watching my daughters, they oftentimes trace. Well, my daughters are more talented than I. I traced often because I wanted kind of my own copy of something to look well. I wonder if others were to trace your life. Would they get a copy of the, like an outline of the life of Christ? Word to the young men in our church, one of the greatest blessings in the life of the church is that there would be a crop of young men who are raised up, who desire to give their lives in service to God and in through the ministry. And one of the greatest temptations of young men is the temptation to pride and the temptation to move too quickly or to have an argumentative spirit. If your life is exemplary, then your doctrine will be upheld. And so, young brothers, if your life is exemplary, your doctrine will be upheld. 
But if you are insisting on your doctrine and neglecting an exemplary life, I hope you can see that you are tearing down with one hand what you're seeking to build up with the other. And I think there's a word here for the church and for our older members specifically. It is a gift from God to have younger men raised up in service to God. Let's not discourage them because of their youth. I pray that we would not oppose the work of God in a young man's life, but instead we would encourage it, we would pray for it, we would support it as best as we can. One pastor said, how many thoroughbred racehorses in the Christian life were once young bucking colts who needed time to mature to what God was calling them to do? The place for that to happen is here. It's in the context of the local church. Next feature of a good servant's ministry. A good servant's ministry is marked, number three, by a devotion to God's word. By a devotion to God's word. Look at verse 13. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Paul's not sure when he can come, but until then, he insists, he commands, no other option but obedience, devote yourself, pay close attention to, apply yourself to the reading and the teaching, uh, the reading and the preaching and the teaching of God's word. Let's just be clear, we show what, the, what we believe about the Bible, not merely by what we say about the Bible, but how we use the Bible. It would be hard to overemphasize this point. The Word of God must be central in the ministry of a good servant. It must be central in the ministry of a pastor. It must be central in the pastor's heart and in the church's ministry. These three things, when taken together, gives us a good description of what's to happen when the, when the body gathers. But this should also extend outside of the time of the sermon in the life of the church as well. Which if we just go back to 1 Timothy chapter 3, this is why it's important to have deacons, because deacons serve to ensure that elders are able to give themselves to the word ministry. We do this every week together. We sit under the word. The word calls us to worship at the beginning of our services. The word is interspersed, the just public reading of it. It's interspersed throughout our service, before the sermon, even as we heard Anne today, publicly read the word. Our services will always close with public reading of the word. And so we just, we're devoted, giving ourselves to the public reading of the scriptures but not just to the public reading, but also to the preaching and the teaching. The word there, exhortation, is often translated as preaching as well. It used to be the case that in most church services, there would be an Old and a New Testament reading. And sadly, reading of the Word of God is missing in many churches. Sadly, there's a famine of the Word of God, not only in our land, but even in our churches. 
Paul tells Timothy to devote, to dedicate himself to the reading of the word. But Paul also mentions that Timothy should be devoted to exhortation of the word, to preaching of the word, the calling, the summoning, the exhorting for the congregation to respond to what is read and what is taught. And by teaching, he means explaining and clarifying and applying God's word. I would just encourage you sometime either today or this week, go back and read 2 Kings chapters 22 and 23. Uh, Read Nehemiah chapter 8. Look at what happens in the life of the people whenever the word is brought to prominence again. The word brings life. And it makes sense that the word brings life because the author of the words, the ultimate supreme sovereign foundational author of the words gives life. And this book, Hebrews tells us, is living and active. And so I'm not sure this morning what your impression is of a good pastor, but the Bible says the way we think about good pastors is first and foremost those who are devoted to the scriptures, who read, who preach, and who teach them. The truth of God's word preached as the spirit of God moves is what gives life to the body of Christ. And so brothers and sisters of covenant life, if I can just encourage you, put God's word first in your own life. Don't neglect the reading of the word. Don't neglect the study of the word. Don't neglect teaching the word one to another, sharing the word one to another. And don't neglect any opportunity. When the Bible is read here, When the Bible is read in your community, when the Bible is read in gatherings and events that we do, when the Bible is preached and the Bible is taught, do everything in your power to be gathered with the body. It matters. And a good servant's ministry is marked by this type of devotion to God's word. Brings us to the fourth A good servant's ministry is also marked by, number four, using God-given gifts. Using God-given gifts. We see this in verse 14. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Paul encourages Timothy to spend himself in service to the church. He's going to repeat this idea in 2 Timothy 1, verse 6. For this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. What is the gift? We're not told explicitly. Presumably, it's something related to preaching and teaching the word. And the church had commissioned him for such a task and service by laying on of their hands. You see, this is how this works. God gives certain people to the church that they can stand before them. And as the church affirms these God-given gifts, the church then has the responsibility and the privilege to publicly place them in these God-given offices to lead the church and to serve the church. Paul and every pastor since are to labor in the word and use their gift 
or gifts that God has given them. And what we learn from this verse is that it is possible for for even a good servant to grow distracted or to be tempted to neglect his gift. Anyone listed in the army isn't to be caught in civilian affairs. And so Paul says, Timothy, practice these things. Immerse, these, uh, immerse yourself in these things. The hourglass is running to the bottom of each of our lives. And serving Christ in and through the God-given gift that he's given us. To make his name known in the world and to serve the church is a once-in-a-lifetime privilege. Friends, don't waste your life. Utilize your gift. The end is coming, so serve with all of your might, with the strength that God provides. Don't be lazy. It's easy to be lazy in ministry. Don't be slothful in your service to Christ. Be like Paul, who who near the end of his life says, I am pouring out my life as a drink offering. I am being spent for this. There's a crown laid up for those who give their lives to make Christ known. Not just for pastors, but for all of us, that we would all be training for the purpose of godliness. It is a terrible thing to not use that which the Holy Spirit has given to build up his church for the glory of the one who's given it. If Timothy isn't using his gifts, then others aren't being trained to use their gifts and the body suffers. And you may be thinking, I'm an unimpressive Christian, but the fact that you are his means that you have a gift. And so use it. I pray that Come to Life would not be a place where it is common to walk the halls of our lives and our homes and just go, yep, yep, gift not used, gift lying dormant, gift, gift being underutilized. I pray that we would lean into using what God has given us. And why has he given it to us? To build up the body and to bring him glory. Leads to the fifth mark. A good servant's ministry is marked by, number five, working hard at godliness. Working hard at godliness. Listen to what he says in verse 15. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. There should be a visible progress in the work of growing in godliness. This is true for for elders. This is true for for all Christians. The ministry requires us to labor hard and to strive and to work hard. A lukewarm pastor or a lukewarm Christian is a contradiction of terms for Paul. Christians are those who take pains to apply and grow in these things. Most of us have parents who know what hard work is like. My dad worked in a steel mill for almost all of my life, and he did it doing shift work. And I saw before me what it looked like to discipline the body and to do things you didn't want to do, but to work hard. 
And Paul says this must mark elders and this must mark Christians. One pastor put it this way. Hard workers have the body that reflect it. And the same is true for pastors. The pastor's back should be bent plowing the ground of human hearts and planting the word of God in them. The pastor gives himself diligently to making progress. He's not perfect, but he's growing steadily over time. His handling of the gospel, his preaching, his teaching, it gets better. And just to remind you, it is hard work to tend to souls. It's work to encourage and work with sinners to turn from sin. It's hard work to get Christians to smash the shackles on their hands and feet from self-inflicted struggles. It's hard work to bang the hammer against the coal until the diamond of Christ shines through before the people. It's hard work to pray, to be on your knees before God. And I'm not talking about just throwing prayers up, but to persevere in prayer. Paul said to the Colossians, he labors and strives to present them as pure, as a pure bride before the church. And Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, practice and immerse yourself in these things. Calvin, John Calvin said, our labors are not wasted if our efforts are better today than yesterday. Are you making progress? Are you putting in the diligent hard work? Leads us to our last feature. A good servant's ministry is marked by, number six, persevering and watching life and watching doctrine. Persevering and watching life and watching doctrine. Verse 16, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Watch your life and watch your doctrine closely. And let's just, let's just call it for what it is. We love to watch other people's lives closely. We love to even watch our doctrine. We love to watch our doctrine grow we don't love watching our lives. We don't enjoy when the word exposes or when we see inconsistencies or we're confronted with gaps. And the dangerous posture of heart is to just sort of say, well, I'll just turn my, my eye to it. And I'll just focus on the things that are positive, that are good. Paul tells Timothy, have a close watch a complete watch, your life and your doctrine, all of it. And it's a comforting watch because it will save yourself and the hearers. This isn't a watch that he can delegate to someone else, though he ought to lean into the accountability and the perspective of others. In the same way, he can't neglect his doctrine. He can't just say, I will let other people grow in doctrine and I will sort of ride behind them into the counseling situation, into confronting the falsehood. How off is it for a man to watch out for assassins aiming at people's souls only to have blinders to the snipers that are aiming at his? 
As a soldier is to keep his rifle clean and in working order, so too the pastor is to keep his life and doctrine clean and in working order. Your life is never meant to pull down what you're building in your doctrine. Phil Riken said a pastor can't defend the Christian faith if he doesn't live the Christian faith. Richard Baxter said it more convictingly. There are too many men who know how to be ministers before they know how to be Christians. Ministers must know more than anyone what he believes, and he must live it out. Only a persevering faith is a saving faith. And so is Paul saying that salvation is owing to the minister's effort and work? God forbid he's saying that. If he's saying that, then there's no hope for any of you. That's a task too large for any minister and pastor. But God does use means, and he uses methods, and he uses tools, and the tool that God uses to deliver the minister and the people is the faithfulness of the minister as he gives himself to preaching and teaching and living out the gospel. We're called to a persevering faith that doesn't turn away, that doesn't give up, I mean, you shouldn't follow a pastor who speaks for Jesus' love for the church all the while who neglects his own wife. That would be a man who has his doctrine right and his life wrong. You should be leery of one who would warn of the judgment to come, but who lives a double life. You should be leery of those who calls for sacrifice and boldness in the people but risks nothing of his own life for the sake of the gospel. Can a man be trusted who calls others to fast while his stomach is constantly full? Men, Spurgeon tells the stories of those men who preach so well and they live so awfully that when they were in the pulpit, it was said, oh, may he never leave the pulpit And when he was out of the pulpit, it was said, oh, may he never return to the pulpit. It ought not be so for a faithful servant. His life and his doctrine must go hand in hand in bringing honor to the one to whom he serves. And this persevering This idea is so important because we live in a day when the idea of conversion has been sort of relegated to a one-time event, a one-time profession, and it's settled. Someone prayed, someone signed a card, someone went forward, and it doesn't matter how he lives after that. As long as that happened, then they're good. And, and, And I praise God for, I'm assuming, the millions who followed those means and whom God has genuinely saved. I praise God for it. But I fear, though, that any of us who think just because we signed a card and we've given no attention to how we live, I fear that somehow we think we're okay. When, the Christian, when Christian doctrine teaches us that it's not just beginning the race well, but it's running it and finishing it well. Saving faith is an enduring faith. It's a persevering faith. 
And the reason this persevering is so critical is because it's evidence of genuine conversion. And those that sit under your ministry will be affected by your doctrine and by your life. And so, brothers and sisters, keep on persevering. Watch your life and watch your doctrine. And to my non-Christian friends that are here, the invitation to follow Christ is ever before you. But I want you to know that following Christ does not mean that life is easy. It will require you to persevere in the face of difficult days. In the face of numerous hardships. And you will need to persevere. And in turning to Christ, you will graciously be given his spirit, which will allow you to persevere. What he requires of you, he provides for you. And that's the nature of his mercy. And Paul shares these words so that we, even some 2,000 years later, would know what a faithful elder looks like, what a faithful church looks like, and how we grow in grace and in doctrine and in life for the glory of our God and for the good of others. Let's pray. God, as your word goes forth and it paints a picture that we are to behold, I pray that we would behold Christ and we would see how all of this is an invitation to respond to the grace of Christ, to imitate the life of Christ to walk in a manner worthy of Christ and that sounds daunting were it not for your Holy Spirit And so praise God that not only you've given us gifts to serve others you've given us your spirit to live this way and so the appropriate response at this point is not to rush into just singing but it's to reflect it's to listen, and it's to respond. And so where there needs to be confession, I pray that there would be confession. And where there needs to be encouragement, I pray that your spirit would build up. And where there needs to be conviction, I pray that you would convict and that your kindness and conviction would lead us to repentance. And so in this moment of silence, we ask that you would speak. We're listening.